Hello, Microbe Gal Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Microbe Moment, that show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. Today, joining me is Natasha and Christina, who are not only published authors, podcast hosts, but also well-known for being leading experts in the gut microbiome. Thank you so much, ladies, for joining us, and welcome to The Micro Moment. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. So let's start off with my favorite question um, for all of our guests here on the show. What is your micro moment? Uh, when was the first time that you were drawn to the microbial world? Natasha, do you want to start us off here? Yeah, for sure. So... Um, I've been in the field for a while, so it did take me a moment to kind of think about, think about this interesting question, but I have to say, um, I was actually living in, um, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan at the time. And I saw a poster advertising how diet can help your microbiome. And naturally, because I'm a registered dietitian, I was very, very intrigued. And so from the looks of the poster, it seemed like um, it would be a reputable presentation, something that I'd be interested. So certainly I, I attended that presentation. And I have to say there was probably about 600 people in the audience. Wow. And yeah, it was it was like a packed house. So I'm like, well, I'm not the only one that's super curious about this. I was it started out this presentation started out really, really well. But then it just started to go downhill a little bit when we started, I started hearing words like, oh, this diet is going to cure your microbiome. And then um, things like, well, if you eliminate all these foods, it's going to help your microbiome. And then I started to become a little bit skeptical and um, upset a little bit because I thought, you know, when I hear these words, like that seems like a little bit of pseudoscience. But from there, you know what, I realized I think what the issue here is that there's nobody out in this field that has the expertise yet. And it really drove me to begin delving into this field and wanting to truly understand the literature on what is happening in diet and the microbiome. So that was kind of my turning point or say micro moment for me. And so um, what about you, Christina? Yeah, for me, I think my journey started um, a few years before I met you, and it really started with um, not feeling well, um, and I think I, I described it a little more in detail, um, Tess, in a previous podcast with you, but basically, yeah, I was, I was not feeling well. I got really drawn into this world of fermented foods, and not just because of the potential, you know, they had for health, but also because I just found this idea so compelling that there are these living things that can transform foods and and also sort of the metaphorical power of that that you know they could change they could change us they were living things and um yeah i got into the fermented foods community i started reading the books by sandor katz so i didn't actually come at this um through a scientific lens initially but then when I did discover that this body of science was starting to get going sort of in the early 2000s, I did start to um, pay attention to that body of science and I started blogging and really ended up focusing on the scientists in the field and getting out their messages to the wider world. And so if I had a micro moment per se, I think it was when I first tasted 
a fermented pickle and I'd never tasted anything like it in my life in my life it was so different from those ones that sit in vinegar for years on the store shelf it you know it was like a kosher pickle from a a Jewish deli and it was just so amazing and alive and then you know from there I started to make my own and and taste as many as I could yeah so that's that's a really good segue into my next question which is what is your favorite microbial derived food or drink well, I would have to say anyone that knows me might say or know that uh, wine is actually a huge passion of mine. Mine too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm so fortunate to live in the Okanagan Valley and we just have so many wineries and so many different types of wine to actually choose from. But what I find absolutely fascinating about wine itself, it's not about so much the alcohol content, although at times, sometimes it's nice to enjoy it for those reasons. But it truly is that you have these grapes that you're that are fermented, but it's just so much more complex to get the actual output of wine. It's about the environment. It's about the soil. It's about what the weather was like um, while it was growing. And then also what yeasts are in the environment um, during those time periods. And of course, the uh, creativity of the winemaker. And I think what's so important to me is that a lot of times a really good glass of wine is paired with some really wonderful types of food. And as a result of that, it, it, it truly brings people together and you can be on totally different playing fields with someone. But once you have, sit down and have a meal with someone, it seems that you can always find something to talk about or, or discuss. I, yeah, I 100% agree with that. I think there's very little things that bring people together more than music and food. And it's like, if you can share in those two things, like you can have, you can have a great relationship with somebody. And I, I think it's in, I did my PhD in wine microbiomes, um, not in actually the, the wine itself, but of grapevines. And so it's always very interesting to me, the different microbes that are inside a plant. Uh, and then we use the plant to produce a certain kind of food and we can get all the different flavors and different types of wine, even though they're the same, they're all vitis vinifera, the same type of um, species, the same grapevine. And just and and often the same kind of yeast species as well, just different strains and different serotypes, and you get very different flavors of wine. It's really beautiful. I, I can't agree more. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and I agree with both of you that yeah, there's nothing quite like sitting down to a meal and maybe a glass of wine with others. It's one of the reasons why I sort of miss the in-person conferences because so many conversations and connections can happen over those conference dinners, um, and in fact, that's where. I kind of got to know Natasha initially is at one of these conferences, but I would say, yeah, my favorite microbial derived food lately, it, it has to be kefir. Mm. Yeah. I I've gone through different phases where I haven't taken good care of my kefir grains, but right now I've been doing it on a, a daily or, you know, every second day basis and, you know, making kefir on my counter with the grains and I would say, yeah, it's, it's terribly sour. Like it does not taste good, but <laughs> I really enjoy uh, making it and, and drinking it. And sometimes I add fruit or whatever, but I guess maybe that ties into kind of my no pain, no gain philosophy. 
where sometimes you have to, you know, power through to get to the real rewards. And, and I'm really inspired too by some of the researchers that study Kiefer. I'm thinking of Paul Cotter, for example, in Ireland, and he's done some work showing, well, first of all, naturally fermented kefirs are all very different in terms of their microbial composition, but that some of them, the microbes that are in there, they have various health effects and maybe related to heart health or or other things. Um, And they're all a little bit unique. So I don't actually know what my kefir might be helping me with, but it feels good to have that dose of live microbes every day. Yeah, I think it it definitely like, you know, as more diet things come out, everything is going towards intuitive eating. So if it makes you feel good, then it's probably, probably doing good as well. So for people that, that may not know, Christina, can you tell us what kefir is and what it's made of? Yeah, so it's basically, there's a kefir grain, that's what you start with, which is this kind of gelatinous goo, little almost kernels maybe, and they're made up of different microbes kind of bonded together in a matrix, and then you just pour milk over top. You can probably use other things, maybe like non-dairy milks, I'm not sure, but the one, you know, what I use is milk and um, yeah. And then you just let it sit on the counter and the microbes do the fermenting of the milk. You can let it sit longer. You know, if you let it sit four or five days, it'll be a very sour kefir. And if you don't, if, if you leave it overnight, it will be less sour. And then, yeah, you just strain the grains out and you can drink the kefir. Thank you. Yeah. I've not, I've not made kefir. I I wasn't aware that it was you know, only a few days that you you wait for until it's done. That's a pretty quick fermentation. Yeah, I like the routine of it. Yeah, like every day or every two days, just getting your batch. Mm. So we've talked a lot about fermentation as a microbial function from wine to kefir to, to pickles. But do you guys have any other favorite microbe functions? Well, I think with any microbe, there's a lot of fermentation that happens because they need to eat as well. So I think for me, what I find interesting as a registered dietitian is that for for many years, we've been saying to people, increase that fiber intake, increase that fiber intake. Yet Canadians still are only getting approximately 10 grams of fiber into their diet a day. Whereas our recommendations for females are more in the 25 grams, males even higher, but yet we're not able to do it. But yet with this new research coming out on the microbiome and and the health benefits of fiber, number one being um, these microbes using that fiber to produce short chain fatty acids. So short chain fatty acids have been known to have many beneficial effects in the body. Number one being one type called butyrate actually feeds our colon cells. So we actually need those to keep our gut healthy. Uh, the butyrate, but also some of the other short chain fatty acids have been shown like to travel throughout the body. So more and more research is showing that it's imparts beneficial effects on metabolism. So it could be diabetes, obesity, brain health, and the list goes on and on. And what's particularly cool for me is I'm just wrapping up my clinical studies from my PhD. And it's been so exciting to know that as I educated the clients that I was working with, the ones that were able to follow the recommendation, their, their short chain fatty acid levels shot like through the roof from eating more fiber. So it, it was, it's pretty exciting to see like 
something that I did actually was able to show that output in the end of my study. Yeah, that's really exciting. That's so cool. So was the recommendation for fiber, was it the the 25 or in the 20s for, for females or was it higher fiber than even that? No, we were just aiming at just really just increasing fiber intake from baseline and, and from a variety of different sources. I guess uh, alongside that, did they did you find anyone having any other health benefits from having the fiber and increasing the short chain fatty acids from like just energy levels or weight loss or anything else sleeping better? See what we were actually, I, I study inflammatory bowel disease. So um, I was particularly looking at patients with ulcerative colitis. So we actually were able to show reductions in, in some of their inflammatory markers, which is something we were hoping to see. And it was likely as a result of eating a better quality diet, eating more fiber. So this is hot off the press. Really exciting to share those results because I've been working at it for five years on this clinical trial. So it's good to have the results and that they're so positive and that they can help so many people. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And Natasha, that's interesting because I think, you know, I have a lot of family members with inflammatory bowel disease and a lot of them at some point cut out fiber because they perceive that it makes their symptoms worse. But I guess maybe this research is showing that's not the best strategy all, all the time. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on different populations, but I think I could say one of the strongest dietary factors, if we wanted to change something in our diet, it would be to increase that fiber intake, trying to get it for the fiber from different types of sources and um, some people tolerate some sources better than others. So trying different types of fibers and see what individuals can tolerate. Yeah. And building on what you say, you know, um, in terms of my favorite microbial function, I've been yeah fascinated by, in general, those examples where microbes and a dietary substrate work together to produce some effect on the body. So yeah, fiber is a great example. There's a few others that are emerging, I think, in the literature. Some of them have to do with polyphenols and those compounds that are converted by microbes or used by microbes and then producing health effects. Um, tryptophan is another one. I've read papers showing that the gut microbes metabolize them and produce indoles, which are important molecules for gut motility, general gut health, and maybe even brain function. So yeah, there's a lot of these examples emerging. And I just love that the, the mechanisms are starting to emerge where there's this teamwork between the gut microbes and the diet in the best case scenario. You know, sometimes those key microbes might be missing or, you know, different, and then things may go wrong. But I love that this such um, precision is emerging in this field. Absolutely. Yeah, I love how we're, we're really starting to get into how the gut microbiome is affecting all facets of our life and how we need to take care of our gut microbiome as if it was like a pet of ours or, you know, as a, our child, we have to take care of it, we have to nourish it, and we have to grow our microbiome to, to live a long, happy life. And I, I think there's just something really special in that uh, understanding and how it's being brought to the public. Mm -hmm. So, if anyone's wondering why we're talking so much about the gut microbiome, Natasha and Christina host a podcast called the Gut Microbiota Practice Tips Podcast. 
And you two have also collaborated on a couple other projects. Can you tell us a little bit of how you two met? I know you mentioned a conference, um, but how did you really form this relationship that you could form all these projects and collaborations from? I can start, Christina. I think, like Christina mentioned, our, our first meeting really was at a conference and um, we met through um, a mutual connection and, you know, we truly hit it off right away. Um, I think we both have this passion for knowledge translation, ensuring this information we do pass on is evidence informed. Sitting at that conference, we knew like there, there, there aren't a lot of uh, resources for say professionals or the general public for people to turn to. So that sort of led us to our first project, which was the our textbook called uh, Gut Microbiota Interactive Effects on Nutrition and Health. And we also have another co-author, Dr. Uh, Edward Ishiguro. And our passion for that came out of just knowing there was so much information coming out around nutrition and the microbiome. And there wasn't really a place people could turn to at that time. So that kind of forged our relationship. And we've enjoyed working together so much. It just sort of, it's one of those relationships that just clicks. So we've had the opportunity to do a number of presentations together. And again, we saw this opportunity to, we actually have a newsletter, which um, we curate every month, just I think it's a way for both of us to keep on top of the latest scientific evidence. It helps us to read this information, think about this information and translate it in a way for others to understand. So that's how I think our relationship has been formed. But Christina, please add on to that. Yeah, I agree with all of the above. And I think, yeah, what ties together all of our projects is sort of this journey we're on to try to keep up with, you know, to the extent that that's possible, keep up with the the main points of the science on diet, gut microbiota and health. And I really see it kind of as a triangle where you've got, yeah, diet on one point, gut microbiota on another and health on another. And I don't think you can talk about two of them without the third. And that's something we really realized in writing that first textbook, the edition one of the textbook, you know, there at that time, there were a lot of correlation studies and they would show, oh, you, you have this kind of diet and you have this kind of microbiome, but what they were lacking at that time, a lot of the time was okay, but then how does health change? And now the studies are just so much more sophisticated the, you know, even the, you know, for example, the research that Natasha is doing very sophisticated with mouse models and humans and um, just trying to triangulate all this stuff to come to some conclusions about what is going on. And so we did the textbook and presentations, as Natasha had said, we started the podcast again, as a way to really try to be concise about different topics within this area and see if we could have, you know, a 15, 20 minute conversation to summarize one area as it stood and, you know, not going beyond and saying, being sort of hyping it up, but just saying where the evidence was. Yeah. We're working on being a little more uh, regular with the posting of the podcast, but yeah, it's a nice challenge as we look to um, write the second edition. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a podcast is a ton of work. So I totally hear you there. It's, it takes so much effort to to get everything out on time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you guys have a podcast, you guys have a textbook, you guys have presentations. Why is it important to you to present your work to others or to create all these different formats? I assume the textbook is more like pro- professional people and your podcast can be more general public. Why is it important to address things to the different audiences? I think the, the real drive for both of us is just to really get the information out there. And as we've both worked in the field, that's where a lot of our questions come from and our drive to start and create different projects is just really the audience that we're talking to. So we talk to a variety of audiences and want to meet the needs of these audiences. And a lot of times it's these are just like our passion projects. I think for me also, it just keeps me current. Even though I'm doing my PhD in this field, the amount of research is so overwhelming and vast And it's taken years for me to really understand how to interpret these studies. I'm still learning. And as Christina says, more and more, the the studies are just becoming more sophisticated. The tools that people are using in their research is becoming more sophisticated. I, I just love sharing the information. And I think that's probably my most favorite part. Natasha, I think one reason why we work so well together is, um, you know, I spend all day sort of skimming through the new research and just like finding highlights and, and not going that deep with any one study. But, you know, with your expertise, you can really go deep and do the interpretation and, and sort of hit that deeper level. So I think that, you know, that's where we try to strike in our presentations is Natasha, and especially during your PhD work, Natasha, you've gone, you know, right into that immunology and all those very complex concepts that come into this. And whereas I just try to like, you know, keep a, an eye on like what's happening in general in the field um, through, you know, the food side, but also um, the pharma side. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about your book. And we've talked, you have podcasts that are about 15, 20 minutes. We've talked about presentations that you have. Natasha, you're writing a thesis, which is no joke at all. It's a huge, huge document as well. And I, I kind of, and Christina, you have blogs, you have newsletters, uh, articles. What was different about writing the textbook? What was that process like? So having not written a book myself before, it, it was it actually was a very positive experience because I felt like my focus really was on just reading microbiome articles. And then I had to think about those articles and then translate them and it into various chapters and sections of chapters. We all did that, of course, to come up with this big book. It, it was challenging because we also were had to meet deadlines, work within confines of a word limit and if you can imagine the amount of research that's out there and trying to summarize this research and make it concise, we also really wanted to provide some real practical tips. So we do have a chapter in our book that focuses on the translation of what we understood at the time around diet and the microbiome. So it was actually quite a positive experience and a lot of hard work, but a very proud moment when we actually saw some of the mock-ups of the cover 
And then all of a sudden it was printed and it's like the hard work was all worth it. It was something that I was quite proud of. Yeah, I agree. It was an amazing moment to hold it, you know, in our hands. And yeah, for me, it was, I guess, throughout the process, I was surprised just how much we had to cut out, really. Because I think with the the limits on, you know, the words in the in the textbook, it's really not even at the level of a review article, like a review article even goes way further into depth. And so we just had to hit this really high level and make sure we were trying to, you know, write about the most, like the highlights or the turning points in the field. And some of those, you know, we gleaned from the experts, you know, I would interview different experts and find out things from them or the conferences. Yeah. So we just really had to hit this high level and, and in writing the second edition, it's, it's definitely a whole new set of highlights and turning points in the field, I think that have emerged. So the first edition was published in 2018. How long did it take you to put that together? I think it was about uh, two years, maybe, maybe shorter. Yeah. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. That's so much faster than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. With three of us working on it, um, we we survived and and we made it. Yeah, it seems like it would be a ton of work. Um, so you, you guys have mentioned that there is a second edition. That's um, are you guys working on another edition? When's that supposed to be come out? Yeah, so we're currently working on the next edition, and certainly there has been a lot of changes in the field. Really, as Christina had mentioned, what what we're seeing now a lot more is the intervention studies that perhaps we didn't have. A good as many when we wrote the first textbook. So what that means is that they're not only interventional studies, but more animal studies. So like there's that cause and effect um, that we can start drawing some interpretations from very cautiously from the science. And so again, like the literature has increased at an astronomical pace. It's it's, it's very overwhelming. And I, I joke because I, I really honestly thought when I started my PhD that, you know, dedicated full time to this field, I'd be able to read all the articles, but it, it's virtually impossible. There's just so many coming out each month and all your other responsibilities. Uh, it's just not possible. Yeah, no, for the second edition. Yeah, we're in the process of, yeah, trying to sift through all of this and find the main points. But it is interesting how many of the articles sort of come around to the same ideas. And like I say, one of the key ideas being gut microbes and dietary substrates working together to produce some effect. But yeah, there's there's still a ton of things to, um, to go through and to summarize for this book. Um, but I think largely the the format is going to be the same. And and as Natasha said, like really still trying to focus on the take-home points and the practical aspects, because, you know, I think a lot of the so-called gurus, you know, in this field, the health gurus, they do give you the 12-step plan or whatever it is for the microbiome. And those aren't necessarily science-based, but we wanted to give at least something based on the current science, Um, not a 12-step plan, but just at least some concrete you know, recommendations or or suggestions to, you know, help people move forward and, and with the notion that, okay, these might change as the science changes, but this is what we know so far.
This week's episode of The Micro Moment is brought to you by Zymo Research. Accurate and reproducible microbiome analysis relies on well-defined mock community standards as well as optimized methods for sample collection, nucleic acid extraction, library prep, and bioinformatics. Check out Zymo's complete microbiome workflow at zymoresearch.com. That's Z-Y-M-O-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H.com. So was it easier? Is it easier or harder to make the second edition because you have a blueprint or was it easier to do the first one because it was more open for creative space? I think what we're really finding is um, how, how much new information there is. And we're still, there, there is still a word limit and we have to be reasonable, right? It can't be just so many pages that someone isn't going to pick it up and read it. So I think I'm finding it's a little bit tougher. What do you think, Christina? Yeah, definitely. Just really trying to curate exactly what should go in. And yeah, I think we're probably not that far into the process, but we do have a deadline later in the fall. So we'll have to kind of really buckle down in the, in the months ahead. So exciting. I, I do wish you all the, the best of luck with that. Publishing an, a book is something that's been on my bucket list since I was maybe five. So it's, I don't know, it's just, it's really exciting to talk to people that have actually completed that task. Thanks for sharing that story with me. <laughs> so Natasha, I want to uh, talk a little bit more about you and your career. I, we talked a little bit about your micro moment, but why did you become a registered dietitian? Why was that something that was interesting to you? Well, I think when I think back at a very young age, I was somebody that really loved um, cooking and eating well. And I still enjoy that to this day. But I think that was like sort of the, I guess, the foundation of how I got into nutrition. And then going through high school, I know I loved the sciences. And so knew I wanted to be something, do something that involved science. And naturally, I also have this piece of me that felt like I needed to help people. And I always saw myself as working in the healthcare system. And so being a dietitian was a natural fit. And the fact that the credentials of a registered dietitian signify that we are providing evidence-informed practice was also very important to me. But another piece was the fact that I've always been really interested in clinical nutrition. You can be a dietitian and a lot of dietitians work in a lot of different areas and different fields, but what's always been a particular interest to me is the clinical nutrition area. So meaning therapeutic nutrition, where we provide a diet to help people's living with chronic conditions. And so that really appealed to me and yeah, I, I still maintain my credentials today, still see clients in addition to um, pursuing the research avenue of things. And, and it's something that is part of me and I'm very proud of to have worked towards getting those credentials. And I have to say my um, being in uh, the PhD life, um, which I understand you've gone through as well, Tess, is it can be challenging. And I think some of my biggest 
I guess, supporters, cheerleaders have been these colleagues I've interacted with over the years. They've supported me. And that's why I'm so passionate about sharing this nutrition information around the gut microbiome. Yeah, so you're right at the tail end of your PhD. So congrats in in advance for becoming a doctor there. But what's next for you? I'm going to um, continue my studies with a physician who specializes in nutrition and gastroenterology. And we're going to continue on with some of the studies that I've been doing. In particular, I'm very interested in the Mediterranean diet and beneficial health. So the Mediterranean diet Mm -hmm. in the inflammatory bowel disease population. So we're going to do some work with that and um, some other projects together. So I'm really looking forward to that. My PhD has involved, a huge component of it was animal work, looking at the mechanisms of the microbiome and diet, and um, certainly a clinical intervention trial. This next phase will be more focused um, intervention studies in individuals that have inflammatory bowel disease. Awesome. That sounds like, uh, I mean, you definitely have your path set for you. So that's great. I talked to a lot of PhD students or or PhD candidates, and they're so focused on getting the thesis out, they can't, they don't really know what to do next. And that was my case. So it's good that you have a path, you know what you're doing. And it sounds like it's wonderful. I think the Mediterranean diet has, it's one of those things like you owe, you've been hearing is helpful and beneficial to people for longevity and for your health for years and years. And and now we're starting to link it to the microbiome too, which I think is really fascinating that it just seems to help every facet of life so far. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think what's important to me is that it truly is a lifestyle and it still allows people to eat wonderful tasting foods that are visually appealing. They taste well but also um, can have some really beneficial effects on the gut microbiome. And we're just delving into this area when it comes to inflammatory bowel disease. But if you look in the literature for all the different, many other types of chronic diseases, there's some real clear benefits. Yeah, I can't see, I can't wait to see what your studies come up with. We'll have to wait and see. So Christina, I want to turn to you for a little bit. I know that you are a woman who wears many hats. You have a well-fed microbiome cookbook. We've talked about your textbook, blog post, podcast, countless articles that you've written. You've also done some outreach, which I know that you've done. Uh, you're a mother. You've done so many different things, and it's just incredible how many things you're juggling. How do you do it? Well, multiple hats is a good way to put it. I, I do kind of like assume different kind of personas depending on what I'm doing. But I think, yeah, for me, it really comes down to pleasing my eight-year-old self. And what I mean by that is um, at an early age, I was really drawn to words and I loved writing. Um, I used to win like little fiction story contests in my province. And um, but then I I sort of didn't pursue that. I, I grew up and went to university. I stayed focused around words, but I studied linguistics and and like the clinical practice of communication. So I didn't do much writing. I got to a point and and that that all was very fascinating, too. But I got to a point where I thought about my eight year old self kind of yelling at me and saying, why aren't you writing? Why aren't you a writer? And so I sort of started the process of transitioning into full-time writing, you know, cause I, I love doing it and I love learning. I love the challenge of each new article, putting it together like a puzzle, like all the different 
pieces of information and the quotes from the experts. And yeah, so I kind of started this process and gradually made that my entire sort of income and, and what I did with my time. So yeah, so I think it was probably a period of about, you know, three or four years where I transitioned completely into science writing and especially in this one field. And I know there are lots of general science writers, but I just felt like this was an area that constantly posed a challenge. And like, you know, we've been talking about there, there are so many studies to get a handle on that even just focusing on this one field is plenty to keep me busy. And so, yeah. And then when I, when I started writing in this field, I sort of said yes to any opportunity that seemed good that came along and ended up with, yeah, just a lot of different things, um, a lot of different irons in the fire. I would say that lately I've started a process of narrowing again and really focusing on some bigger projects that I can do that are, um, you know, that I can put a little more of myself into. And so we have the second edition coming out. I'm also working on another book that involves stories, people's stories, and try to weave, tries to weave together the science a little more with everyday life. Yeah, I'm in the process of pitching that at the moment. And so I hope to have good news before too long on that front. Yeah, I hope so too. That sounds really fascinating. And sound, you know, it's the micro moment of a ton of people in a book. <laughs> right. Yeah. You have an amazing brand. You are definitely one of the best, most well-known, I think, microbiome writers out there. If you Google, your name comes up constantly, consistently. So you've built such a, a fantastic brand for yourself. And on your website, you have as your tagline, you're a writer on the front lines of microbiome science and health, which I love because it's, it's very beautiful, it's succinct, and it's strong, and it, it says everything that you need. But microbiome is also a very broad topic, as we've talked about. How do you stay up with the latest research and ensure you're not spreading myths or outdated information? Great question. Yeah, because it's so broad, and, and so many things touch on the microbiome, too. Like, it's hard to know where it even ends, <laughs> this topic. So, but I would say, yeah, what really grounds me are experts and um, events that I, you know, attend. So with the experts, I really make it my job to be in constant dialogue with some of the scientists and industry experts in this field and through projects with them or just um, reporting on their work, really trying to keep up to date. And, and, you know, so they also keep up to date on their own specialized area, right? And just really trying to get the main points from them. Yeah, using that as an opportunity to stay up to date. Because it is hard, yeah, to know what truly qualifies as like a step forward or a, a major development sometimes. So, but they can help me filter that. Also, um, events. So, of course, the last two years, it's been a lot of virtual events. But I think um, prior to that, there were a lot of in-person and, and you do have a lot of conversations during those events, figuring out what's new and what's going on. And, and the program committees of different events often, you know, they've got their finger on the pulse. And so they'll curate a program for an event that, that highlights some of those new newsworthy pieces of science. So I think between that, that's how I try to stay up to date. But yeah, it is it is a tall task, I will say. 
and, and especially because there are so many different areas within this and, and then so many areas where it touches the commercial world as well, right? So there's the science, but then there's like these different commercial avenues where there are going to be products or there are products available to buy based on the microbiome. Yeah, there's literally like nothing that microbiology doesn't touch. It's a field that extends to every single other field, no matter what it is, and to every person uh, and every organism on the planet. It's I don't think there's anything else that's quite like it. I agree. Yeah, it's this kind of invisible layer over every single thing we do. Yeah, we don't see it, but it's constantly influencing our lives. So, Christina, you told us a little bit about an upcoming book that you might have, but are there any other projects that you ladies are particularly jazzed about? We've got some presentations coming up. We do enjoy putting our podcasts together, and obviously we'll continue with the newsletters. The, the Right now, I think our biggest project together is, is the, the textbook revisions, which is taking quite a bit of our time. More on a personal note, as I uh, near the end of my PhD, it's really important to me to get my scientific papers out, um, share those results that I've learned through my PhD research with uh, the scientific community, get that information out there. Because I think that's important too, is that, you know, these, the science is funded by public organizations and we need to get that as it's my role as a scientist to get that information out to um, where it may be, where it needs to be, I should say, in the hands of the people. Increasingly, I'm focusing on um, freelance work, you know, aside from these collaborations um, Natasha is mentioning, and really taking what I know about the microbiome and trying to weave it into other topics and, and make it relevant. Because I think, I guess, not every person in the lay public is, is interested in microbes per se. So it's like, where are these points of connection? I recently wrote an article for Nature about uh, liver cancer and uh, hepatitis B infection, how that contributes to liver cancer. And so, you know, always in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, is there a microbiome connection to liver cancer? And so I can find that. And, and there are some studies on that and, and then the diet piece. So really trying to, to see where this fits with other kind of health topics and diet topics. Yeah, I love that. I love when we can take microbes and, and try to share them with people that may not be interested with them because they just don't understand how amazing they are in my opinion <laughs> I don't know how you can't be interested in microbes once you get to know them they're just fascinating I know right yeah that's why you spread the love on this podcast I love it I try I try <laughs> <laughs> so if you could give someone one piece of advice as to how to improve their unique microbiome without knowing anything else about them what would you say as we learn more about about the microbiome, we're starting to realize, well, there's also this aspect of personalized nutrition that's coming into play because everyone's microbiome is slightly different. And a good example of this is that we can give certain types of fiber to one individual and they don't tolerate it. Like perhaps there's, they get a uh, upset stomach or get gassy and bloaty. And, and that's likely because they don't have the microbes in their gut. We don't know that yet. But um, just some of the information that's coming out of my own research, I've actually uh, focused in on uh, fat intake, dietary fats. And so what I'm finding is that different types of fat influence our micro, microbiome differently. And so my key takeaway is that 
at this point, eating a lot of foods that are tend to be highly processed, contain a lot of emulsifiers, omega-6 fats, which have been actually associated with inflammation. So a very simple tip is to switching to whole based foods and that we need to reduce our consumption of those ultra highly processed packaged foods. It's just a way we can simply enhance gut health. Yeah. And I guess I'm, I'm aligned with you, Natasha, on the fiber thing. I think for me personally, that's been the biggest takeaway for myself and my family is really the importance of fiber and a variety of fibers. And I will say like my kids do not like fiber rich foods. Like they're like any kids that like processed things and, you know, sugary things. So it's always a challenge to keep the sources of fiber varied. I work hard on that for myself and I'll go through phases of, you know, different um, breakfast oatmeals or routines like that. Yeah. So I think that's the big takeaway is increasing fiber. And, and yeah, if you, you know, when I start to count the grams of fiber that I take in in a day, even though I try, like, you know, it's still hard to reach that, that target in the dietary guidelines sometimes. So yeah, I'll occasionally count in a day how much fiber I get. So I think for me, that's kind of a lifelong challenge, but it's, it's kept interesting by the notion that, you know, there's all these mouths to feed down in my gut and they're waiting for their next meal to see who's going to live and who's going to die. Yeah. I love those two pieces of advice, fiber and unprocessed food helps a lot of different elements of health too, not just your gut health. So along those same lines, what are the areas to watch when it comes to categories of microorganisms that may benefit health? I, I really see kind of three paths emerging. There's the area of live cultures, and those are sort of these beneficial microbes, beneficial maybe in quotations, where, you know, they, maybe they're a part of fermented foods, but they're, they may be uncharacterized. So you don't know exactly which ones, but you know, they're food associated maybe, and they're just quantities of live microbes that you consume. And there's an area of research focusing on just how many microbes you get of this type and um, what they might do for health over the long-term overpopulations. And then there's the more precise science of probiotics. And this is in the food and supplements area where you have characterized microbes at a specific dose that have a specific health effect. And this, I think, is uh, not a lot of people know about the existence of this area per se, that there's actually some good science on certain microbial strains that they can do things for your health. Because I think sometimes probiotics get thrown in the trash and, you know, people say, oh, there's no science behind that. But I think they're more thinking of the, the live cultures when they say that. And then the third area that I sort of track is pharma. And that is live microbes used as drugs to address a specific disease or condition. And there's a, a whole area of live biotherapeutic products, they're called, really not on the market yet because they're still in early stages, most of them. Well, one of them has completed a, a phase three trial and is close to market authorization, I believe. That's the one by Series Health for recurrent C. difficile infection probably the closest one. But other than that, they're all in various stages working up to being on the market. The regulatory 
situation is a little bit unclear still. So it's not exactly certain how this will reach the market, but I think it's, you know, those in the field tend to say that it will happen eventually. There will be a path for these live micro microbial drugs. Natasha, you have anything to add to that? Where what I would add is I think what we need to, what we really need to watch for is that everything's sort of an emerging science. And I often say at the start of my uh, presentations that I give that what I'm telling you today could change in a year or six months, just because the field is rapidly changing. But there's still a lot to learn. And I am excited for the day where we will have personalized nutrition, where you do come in and see your dietitian or any type of health professional. And we don't provide a generic diet. We, we, find, we provide a diet that's actually tailored to you and your microbes. I don't think we're there in the next five years, but certainly in the new dietitians, health professionals that are coming out that are coming out of um, their education, I'm sure at some point they will be experiencing this. So um, it will be very interesting and exciting times. Yeah, I definitely think personal medicine will happen in our lifetime. Maybe not in this particular decade, but it will definitely happen in our lifetime, which is going to be a really exciting shift, I think, for everyone globally. So I guess diving into those categories a little bit more, I mean, the therapeutics people, the therapeutic micros people can't really get their hands on, but live culture and probiotics people can buy. Is there any advice on, on how to navigate those like the probiotic aisle in a drugstore? Yeah, I think to me, kind of knowing a little bit about the science, I think what's really clear is that when you look at a shelf full of probiotic products, they're so different in terms of what science is behind them and what's on the label and what they can do for you. I really see kind of two tiers of products. And one is where, you know, it's just some food-based microbes put in a capsule, maybe, and labeled and and sometimes you won't even see the strains on the label so you don't even know which type of l reuteri or whatever you're getting among the different strains and then there's this other tier where it's like companies really invest in one strain and figuring out what it can do or or the consortium of strains you know if it's a multi-strain product for example the uh, there's a product for infant health that I think it has 260 studies on one strain of l reuteri. So it's like two worlds really of probiotics and, and to kind of talk to the experts and figure out which is which, maybe talk to health professionals. There's something called the, the US Probiotic Guide and the Canadian Probiotic Guide that has specific product and strain names that can help people figure out like which ones are suitable for which purposes. Yeah, and I think another good resource is ISAP, the International Association of Pre and Probiotics. They have some really nice um, consumer handouts that explain the differences between fermented foods, probiotics. So good consumer resources, health professional resources. But the one thing I do also want to mention is that I find fascinating just looking at the science is that even yogurt itself, pre probiotics aside, some of them have probiotics, some don't, but the health benefits of fermented foods can go beyond just the probiotics, right? Like all the different compounds that are produced from a fermented food can have health benefits. So 
even moving out of the discussion around live active culture versus probiotic, but just consuming for fermented foods in themselves can be beneficial for the overall um, microbiome and have beneficial effects on health, not only for gut health, but um, there's also some very positive metabolic health effects. Yeah, not to mention like yogurt is also a great source of protein if you get Greek yogurt and, and there's lots of other micronutrients in there for your health. We'll have to find some of those resources. Maybe we can link them into the show notes so people can find them. So I have one more question for you ladies before we close. And this is a, a fun question, I think. Are there any misconceptions in, in popular microbiology, pop microbiology, if you will, that you'd like to bust right now? I'd love to. <laughs> I think for me, it's, I just, my skin crawls a little bit when I hear like there's a diet to cure the microbiome because if there is, and I, I must have missed it in this five years of doing my PhD, I must not have read enough. <laughs> so that is mine. Um, certainly there's foods that contrib can, can contribute to the health of the microbiome, but to say a diet, we have discovered a diet that's going to cure, be the cure-all. We're just not there yet. So Christina, what would you say? I guess mine would relate to probiotics probably. And I feel like there's so much of this narrative that probiotics are um, beneficial microbes that help the microbiome. And that's just not scientifically accurate. I think, first of all, probiotics can have health effects. Some of them do, but they do not need to take up residence in the gut microbiota to do that. They have many different mechanisms of action and, and you know, just residing there isn't a prerequisite. It may be in some cases, but not in all cases. So I, I really wish companies in particular would stop with this narrative of, you know, you need to add probiotics to your gut microbiome. That would be mine. Yeah, I love both of those. I mean, there's so many you could go on. We could probably have a whole podcast just dedicated to busting myths and uh, pop microbiology. But for now, we'll leave it there. Um, you both have been so lovely and incredible. And I've learned so much in today's podcast. I'm so grateful that the two of you have come on to our show and shared a little bit about your journey. And I wanted to know before we officially close out the show, is there anyone you'd like to give a little gratitude today? I would love to give gratitude to my husband who has fed me over the last five years <laughs> when I've been uh, immersed in reading and writing, living on my computer day in and day out. Yeah, I would definitely say that the spouses, the, the plus ones, the partners of PhD candidates uh, are the, they don't get enough credit for what they, what we put them through. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely my spouse is very supportive too. And when I have deadlines, he's very good about kind of leaving me to my my typing and uh, late night sessions. So yeah, gratitude to him. And, and to, I have to say to Ed Ishiguro too, um, he's just a wonderful person full of stories has been, I think his, his lab initially was, I think upstairs or downstairs from the lab of Carl Woes. Oh, that's cool. So he's had this enormous history in the field and he's, he, for many years was this amazing educator at uh, University of Victoria here in Canada. Um, he's retired now, um, still very active and a, a great communicator as well. So, so props to him. 
Awesome. Oh, and uh, before we go, where can people find you guys? You can find me on Twitter at nhaskeyrd. I also have a website, uh, natashahaskey.com. Yeah, and I'm on Twitter as well at by Chris Campbell. That's K R I S Campbell, and also a website by chriscampbell.com. And yeah, the the newsletter is probably the best way to keep up to date on any developments and what's on our mind. Um, so I believe there's a sign up on um, our websites for those. Awesome. We'll put a, a link in the show notes for that as well if anyone would like to sign up so that's it for today thank you guys so much for being on the show i really do appreciate it it was a truly lovely conversation thank you for having us it's been a real pleasure thank you well microbial nation that's the end of our show we hope you enjoyed it and if you did don't forget to like and subscribe anywhere that you're listening to podcasts and to share this episode with one friend who you think would like this new information And as always, you can find us at our home on the web, microbegales.com, or you can keep the conversation going by mentioning us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. That's at microbegales. That's M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S. We hope to see you there. And until next time, bye. Bye Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye -bye. Bye -bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.